So there was this stint in the late 80s into the 90s where there were these reports of something called phantom social workers. Not ghostly phantom, just mysterious phantom. Most of what I heard was in the UK, but some reports were stateside too. Generally what would happen is some smart dresser or two would come to inspect a household's children with stated concern for mistreatment, though without any evidence for mistreatment whatsoever. And then stating continued concern, they would sometimes try to then take the kids away. They were convincing to a point. I mean, of course, parents freaked out when official-looking people showed up trying to take away their children, but anytime these parents asked for identification, more often than not, these folks just got out of there. I know, it's weird. Nobody's got a good handle on what it was, either. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of- And written on the wall- And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old- There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of our lovely listeners back. Hello, good friends. I have missed you all so much. I have been looking forward to this time for us to come together and share our grievances but you're on mute, so I'm mostly be sharing mine, which is what we're all here for anyway. And thank you. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening to me work things out. You're all basically my therapist. I think I'm crowdsourcing my growth and personal development, which is a really good plan. It's worked out for me well so far. Nothing has ever gone bad that way. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But we do want to thank all of you for coming back, for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. So we do have a ton of people to thank this week. Ooh, he's reading a list off paper, written in pen. It's old school. It was a lot. (laughs) Thag403093, DancingFeet88, Ms. Frantic, KBlazer7, Miss Mulan09, and Peach is Me. Wow. Isn't that nice how many reviews we have? Can you think of any reason we might... (laughs) Our handy-dandy just-a-story contest. And it's the last week to enter, so if you go and leave a rating and review on iTunes over the next week... We will put your name into the Magical Mystery Hat. Then we will withdraw from the Magical Mystery Hat one name, and then we will mail you things, like a t-shirt or a coffee mug of your choosing from the Just-A-Story merch shop. Yes, so get those in, and speaking of the merch shop, you can access that on our website, justastorypod.com. We have a website. It's where we keep things like illustrations and sources and links and bears. No bears. There's one bear. Are you hiding a bear on the website? I adopted a panda. They said I symbolically adopted him, but I went and got that fucker. (laughs) And we thought the black helicopters were after us before. His name is Oswald. Why? Because he is a panda, and that's like a penguin. Like the penguin. You're really good at biology. (laughs) I know they're both black and white. They both start with P. They're probably related. Exactly. (laughs) On our website, you can also find a link to... Our Patreon page. And on there you can sign up to donate to the show, help support it, and you can get access to lots of fun extra things such as our Just the Stories episodes. 
or a bear. No bears. <laughs> Did you add another Patreon level? <laughs> the come pet the bear level. No. People will think that's a euphemism. Is it not? No. Okay, it's not. It's definitely not. Um, but you can get access to a special coupon code, which allows you to get all of our merch at cost, and also get stickers, which are super fun, and everyone loves them, even Oswald. Did you cover the panda in stickers? He may be wallpapered. And one other way to communicate with us, other than through social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod, is the Urban Legend Hotline, and that number is 512-222-3375. And there you can leave us a voicemail, tell us your deepest, darkest secrets, or story you overheard at the coffee shop. Maybe it's the same. Who knows? Right now, I'd love if people would contact us and leave a short message about the boogeyman that you grew up with. Everyone has a boogeyman. What's yours? Oh, I can't remember. It's in French. Yeah, I can't remember. It, has like, it means like long fingers or something like that. That my Aunt Wheezy would tell us that story because she's a great parent. She is. Uh, but also like there's the Lugaru mm-hmm. in Cajun folklore. I had this family named the Bradfords. It was actually what my parents would warn me about. Like, don't go out there too far. The Bradfords will get you. <laughs> Girl, you country. But they were real. <laughs> Who said mine wasn't? Everyone. Collectively. The universe. It's fake news. So other than those stories, let's get back to today's story at hand. This is a this is one that just really, really, really gets me. I, like even as an urban legend, I don't like it. So these stories are called a few different things. In the U.S., it's usually called the Phantom Social Worker, which is not just someone with a truancy problem. Or in the U.K., it's often called a bogus social worker. All right. So tell me more. So here's a report from 1995 in the Scotland Herald, and this occurred in Edinburgh. Lynn Stewart, mother of two, was warning people that a woman had come to the door and produced official health board identification, requesting to examine her child. She cradled and admired her young baby, Aaron, before asking to see her birth certificate. Miss Stewart said she had gone upstairs to find the document when she became very suspicious. I heard a noise. I don't know what made me look downstairs. She had Aaron on her hip with her briefcase in her hand, opening the front door to get out. She was half out the front door and the baby was screaming and absolutely hysterical. I shouted and came down the stairs. There was a struggle and I lashed out at her. It was the only way I could get the baby back. No, ma'am. No, Ma'am. No, she she punches her. I would have gone Mama Bear so fast. I would have gone Mama Oswald. Her husband later states he was very proud of her. <laughs> and I would have been too. The baby fell halfway onto the step and the carpet. I quickly shut the door and called the police. I'd like to know how she knew my name and how she knew Aaron's name. She seemed to know a lot about me. How did she find out? This is 95? Yes. So before Facebook, because it was like mystery solved. Yeah. Which, by the way, ew, makes me want to take my Facebook page down. We have so many stories today, I didn't include this one, but there is a very recent story about teenagers gathering information on Facebook and then going and trying to steal the babies. Why do they want, why do teenagers want babies? Oh, you can ask them, but... They cry. <laughs> the police warned parents, don't let anybody in your door. Telephone the health center first. 
even if they're convincing, don't let them in. Detective Chief Inspector Donahan linked it to other cases, saying the motives are unclear, but it is possible that the woman is desperate to have physical possession of a baby. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. You said Chief Inspector. Yeah? Like the police. Like a bobby. This is not an urban legend. I told you this is in the Scotland Herald. Well, it could be like she reported it to the newspaper and it wasn't true, but now the police are involved. Like, it's serious. This is throwing me off the deep end. Like, normally we start with a few warm-up versions of stories that are not true before we get to the meat of the story. Well, at the time, the healthcare trust was issuing a circular to all parents with children under the age of five with clear guidelines over staff identification and the steps for parents to take in cases of suspicion. But within a month, the police and health board claimed it was a bogus social worker story, and the mom made it up. But she fought her valiantly, like a bear. Maybe. But she did. I felt it. Well, they did investigate the mom, and she wasn't charged. But in the weeks following the case and reports in the media, many stories were out detailing these, like, possible pedophile rings out to steal children. Oh, And one writer writes, these sensational articles, which inflamed parents' anxieties across Scotland, it was full of hysterical language about evil perverts, warped monsters, and Scotland's most twisted couple. One criminologist, Bill Thompson, claimed similarities between the bogus callers, who have rarely, if ever, harmed a child, and the behavior pattern of a serial killer who roams the country preying on victims. Most of the time when people are collecting babies, they're not just... They're not seeking them out in order to murder them. They're selling them and things, right? Like, Well, that was one of the things they claimed was like a pedophile ring. Oh, no, I didn't mean like that. I meant like to adoptive parents. I was being all Pollyanna. (laughs) Don't be positive. I can't help it. It's weird. You're right. It doesn't look good on me. I'm so confused. But in the 1990s, British newspapers caught wind of stories like this, and it took off. There were individuals posing as social workers who would go to people's homes, knock on the doors, have some kind of official documentation, be dressed very official-like, and claim that they were there to examine the child. And sometimes these fake social workers would even manage to remove the child from the home. So it was a little pandemic. A little hysteria. Mm Mm-hmm. Sounds that way. Now, out of all of these stories that were reported in the papers and reported to police, none of them were ever proven to be true. They never caught anybody. There was never any evidence that this actually occurred. Okay, so we're back to urban legend. Exactly. Well, that was quick. That's been a journey. It was a little journey you took me on there. Thank you. You're welcome. So it just spontaneously apparated somewhere in Scotland... As things do. As things do. In 95. It was first time out of the gate. First time we're hearing about the Phantom of Social Worker. Not 95. Just kind of in the 90s. In the 90s. So satanic panic is raging. Yes. And this is the buttoned up counterpart. No, it is. It's very important to say this is going on at the same time. Because all of these ideas about child abuse and the scare were occurring. So we are getting real reports of child abuse, and we are paying attention to that for the first time. And then we also have the, like, hyperbolics, vapors that have descended upon the United States during the satanic panic when everyone thought that Satanists were stealing their children for blood sugar sex magic. It's kind of funny because satanic panic started in the U.S., pretty much. And 
this kind of started in the UK pretty much. And we kind of like swap seed. Oh, good. Because we've got to have this dose of crazy, too. We're not going to let those Brits have all the fun. Well, and the Brits had plenty of satanic panic as well. Right. They still do. It's still, still ongoing there. Oh, here, too. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> there was just, there was a huge case like two years ago. Huge case. So what is the origin? Well, that's a good question. There's no obvious origin to it. But there are ideas and theories. And so, so this is my theory. I feel like this is based on a very, very popular case that occurred in 1990 mm-hmm. in London. So Don Griffith had just delivered a baby girl. Now, when the baby was 48 hours old, something occurred. She describes it like this. I was sitting up in bed in hospital. My partner Jeff was in the chair beside me and Alex was in her crib. When a blonde woman, aged about 34 and dressed in a brown skirt and top, arrived. She said she was my health visitor and apologized for calling so late, but she'd been busy. After she asked how I was feeling, she had a feel of my tummy. Then she turned to Jeff and said, I need all the support I could get in the next few days. She said she'd have to take Alex to the ward next door to have her weighed, and she asked me to put her in the new cot. So after this, the baby Alex was taken from the hospital. Bullshit, no. By this woman. For baby's day out, and they just had ice cream and came right back? Well, she went missing for 17 days. So that's longer than ice cream. It's a lot of ice cream. So this was a huge media sensation. This was in all the tabloids, all the newspapers. the scariest thing you can possibly imagine. It's terrifying. Yes, and Dawn, the mother, even received a note of condolence from a mother to a mother, signed... Diana. Oh, like like the people's princess. Yeah. Like princes of hearts. And the family made this emotional televised plea for the return of their baby. After 17 days, an estate agent got a little suspicious because there was this woman that was running a cabin out for her and her brand new baby. And she'd seen all of these news reports. Someone can help solve a mystery. Maybe it, it's you. It was her. It was her. So she reported this to the police, and Alex was found in the cottage in rural Oxfordshire. So this is a woman who really did take the baby. She took the baby to a cabin. This was a woman named Janet Griffith, no relation. What a coincidence. Right? She was a nurse and posed as a healthcare worker to steal Alex, the baby. She hoped to persuade her lover to leave his wife by pretending that she'd had his baby. Hey, that's 50 shades of fucked up. I'm sorry. This was on in every paper, on every news channel, the heartbreaking, tear-filled reuniting of the mother who had had her baby literally stolen by someone pretending to be a social worker. Interestingly enough, baby Alex later appeared on Britain's Got Talent. How'd she do? Uh, David Hasselhoff said she was great. Must be true. If Don't ho- hassle if the, the Hoff. Hoff says it, if the Hoff says it, it's gospel. Gospel of Hoff. Okay. As you're telling this story, all I can remember is the creepy nurse that came in our hospital room with our first one. And we knew it was bad when the like director of nurses showed up the next day. It was like, sorry about that. You remember she like came in and woke oh, us all up? No, and she like was She was crazy. Mm-hmm. She was one step away from taking that baby. <laughs> It wasn't far. So that's my theory about this. But if you read around, people 
tie this to another incident. And I think it's probably a combination. I think it's a combination of things that led to these fears being escalated. Okay. And these stories coming out, being in that zeitgeist and coming out in this kind of mass hysteria that occurred. So on July 9th of 1986, Linda Wise, a 22-year-old mother, noticed bruises on the arm of her two-year-old daughter, Lindsay, when she picked her up from school. She mentioned it to her GP, who then reported it, and they were ordered to Middlesbrough General Hospital, where they were given a place of safety order. The family would have to move to a special family unit at a hospital in Newcastle, where they could be monitored 24-7. They were worried about these bruises being caused by the family. Hmm. This that's really rapid reaction. They must have been serious bruises. Well, they were on her arm. <laughs> the children were examined by the doctor on staff, pediatrician Dr. Marietta Higgs. Now, Higgs had recently attended a course and learned about a new technique to determine child sexual abuse. Okay, sounds promising. Right, this is something called reflex anal dilation. No, nope, we're obviously nope, we're not going to go into it. Skimming. We're going to call it RAD. I like it. If I you love... just need to know more about it, you just Google it. Love a good initialism. Now, by using this technique, Dr. Higgs was able to determine that their daughter was being sexually abused and she was immediately taken into social services along with her brother and the couple was arrested. Lindsay was screaming, I want to go home, as her 18-month-old brother clinging to her. And both of the children were placed in foster care. My, that escalated quickly. It seems like an, it's, this whole story is not wow, that escalated quickly. So in January of 1987, Higgs moved to a new hospital and instructed her colleague, Dr. Jeffrey Wyatt, in this new RAD technique. And they began to use it in earnest. Wait, I just want to go on record here and say that anything with the word anal in it should never be done in earnest. Noted. Ever be used in earnest, maybe. April 1987, Dr. Higgs saw the wise girls for follow-up exam, and she diagnosed that they were being sexually abused by their foster family. Again? They have really bad luck. The wise girls and the foster family's three kids were taken into protective care. And this father was arrested. His father later said, Marietta Higgs and the others were like religious zealots on a mission. This feels like the uh, pyramid scheme of abuse scandals. Well, by May of 1987, cases reported by these two doctors soared. They examined 165 children and 121 were found to have abuse. Wow, that's statistically significant. Yeah, for being a little too much. So many children were pulled from their homes. They started to have to house them in a hospital ward. This went from 25 cases in January of 1987 to 110 in June of that year. Again, my, that escalated quickly. Right. And so one person, now an adult, described her experience with Dr. Higgs. She was six years old when she was examined. I was in school painting a vase of red flowers. Mom came in with a social worker and a policeman. I was told I had to leave my picture and go with them to hospital. No one told me why. I wasn't sick. Why did I need to go? Why was mom upset? Now she was examined by Dr. Higgs and also spoke to social workers. Some social workers gave me two dolls to play with. The dolls had no clothes on. They asked me if I knew what private places were, and could I show them the dolls' private places. 
They asked me if I knew what a secret was and did I have any secrets. I said yes to both questions. They wanted to know my secret. I looked at mum. I told them how my dad was in prison and had been since I was a baby. That was my secret. I was taken away along with my little brother who was 10 months old. Now she was kept in this ward with only nurses to watch after her. I woke with a jump. It was dark in the room. I could just see the pale glow of the emergency exit signs. The screaming was getting louder. It was my brother. He was crying and screaming. I gave him a hug. He didn't want me. I went to try and find a nurse. I found one and she shouted at me for being out of bed. I tried to tell her he was crying and she wouldn't listen. She pushed me back into my room and closed the door. He was really bad now. He couldn't stop crying and was coughing a lot. I sat next to his cot and sang to him, What else could I do? One day, Mom came and said we were going home. I couldn't believe it. Granddad was waiting outside in the car, and Nana was in the car too, and she was crying. Come on, she said. Let's get out of this place. We got in the car and drove off. The nightmare was over. We all had to grow up quick in that year of 1987. We all learned to cope. We didn't talk about it. We just pretended it never happened. So basically, they abused children to save them from abuse. To, from from fake fake abuse. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they were doing something that was medically unsound. This diagnostic technique was probably not up to snuff. Well, people started to have their suspicions. I would say that 121 out of 165 would cause me to have some suspicions. Well, at first, of course, people were like, oh, no. Well, this is a huge scandal. Well. There's if, a huge ring of pedophiles. This whole town. If children were being abused, yes. Yes, huge scandal. But well, they had a doctor saying they were, and all the, the social workers were saying that they were. They had them confessing. They had this scientific proof. Did they? They said they did. Okay, so why did she get to go home? So people really began to question her. Dr. Higgs. So the director of social services, Mr. Michael Bishop, became aware of the scale and began to worry. There was also a rift between Dr. Higgs and Dr. Alistair Irvin, the police surgeon, who is skeptical of this use of RAD to diagnose buggery. No, no, it's 1990s, dude. No buggery. Buggery is in all the papers. This is buggery. (laughs) Police issued guidelines to proceed with caution when asked to investigate the Higgs case and look for substantial corroboration of her findings before proceeding. Now, while the police knew about this concern, this was not told to the social workers. Dr. John Forfer, the president of the British Pediatric Association, wrote her a formal letter reminding her of, hey, science. (laughs) Always spoiling the fun. You know, that techniques like this first needed to be established within the profession and that it takes time involving presentation of scientific evidence, peer review, and acceptance through professional journals or scientific meetings. You're using this new technique that no one's really studied. So just, you know, heads up, uh, science. Now the Middlesbrough MP, Stuart Bell, began to question all of this after talking to some of the families. That year at the Labor Party conference, they passed a motion applauding the efforts of Cleveland's social service department in the face of the hate campaign mounted by Bell and the media. One delegate even won an ovation by attacking his ill-judged, irrational intervention for the damage it had done to the image of social workers. Sorry, did they just blame the media? The media and this guy, Bell. Who is probably in on the pedophile room. Just sorry. I'm sure plenty of people were (laughs) saying that. 
Now, similar events occurred in other areas in England as well. But social workers and these doctors had the science and the proof and the interviews, and they just knew that now they could help all of these children and uncover all of this hidden abuse. Well, eventually they did get an inquiry into this by Judge Elizabeth Butler Sloss, and they found that the doctors would do these very short, non-personal exams. Social workers could not say exactly how many children they had even removed from the homes. That seems like something you should know. Right? Should be written somewhere. And they also used anatomically correct dolls. Wait, I thought that was not a good technique. It is not. Okay. And they were... On these videotaped interviews, they were seen to threaten and attempt to bribe children to get them to confess using disclosure therapy. What is disclosure therapy? Well, it's where the children are pressured by adults into making accusations that are false. That doesn't sound like therapy. It's not. <laughs> now, Butler Sloss wrote, In many cases, the result of her diagnosis, Dr. Higgs, caused unnecessary distress to children and their families. This leads us to the reflection that some of the children suffered harm after they were removed from home, whatever may have happened to them previously. Now, Higgs was suspended from her post. Her RAD technique was shown to be complete bullshit and could be found in half of a control group. So half of just normal kids. Which these were... (laughs) Like the one she was saying, like, oh, clearly they've been abused. Only four cases out of all of this were prosecuted successfully. Well, even a broken clock is right twice a day. In more than 80% of the cases, courts dismissed proceedings on grounds that the accusations were false. And of course, they caused tons of harm to the kids. This is a very traumatic circumstance. And even two defendants, two parents, hanged themselves in jail. <sighs> it's terrible. Now, the Wise family, from the beginning, was reunited and never went to trial. And later she found out that her daughter was out picking berries. And that's where the marks came from. Oh. I mean, it's hard because, like, if you were Dr. Higgs and you think you have found the secret of life and you know this secret technique that's going to give you science-based truth and you really buy into it, You're doing what you think is right. You think you're saving children from rampant sexual abuse. But at the same time, like, how do you how do you not go over half the time? Maybe I'm wrong. Right. There was just so much. There were so many red flags. (laughs) So many red flags. (sighs) And I mean, it was quackery. It was quackery. There was no science behind it. She just presented it that way. So did she just make it up out of whole cloth? No, no, no. She got it from a lecture that was given by two other physicians that did. Oh, So, even worse, it's telephone hole cloth. So, these are two very likely, if not origins to the story. The miasma that these stories were created in. These two things happened within a few years of each other in the United Kingdom. Now, in 1990, there was a big initiative that took place in South Yorkshire where Operation Child Care gathered 250 reports and involved 23 police forces in order to investigate all these bogus social worker claims or what later turned out to be bogus so what we were talking about in the beginning the initial report that we were talking about yes okay now a year later no one had been arrested and of the 250 reports police believed only two were genuine and 18 they actually fully investigated but still two were genuine yeah i don't know the details behind that but it's like that could be anything yeah yeah Two were genuine? <laughs> now, of course, 
pedophiles and childless women have traditionally been seen as the culprits in reports of people masquerading as social workers and trying to snatch up kids. But now criminologists think that most incidents are no more than misunderstandings or cries for attention, leaving possibly only a handful of genuine cases. The South Yorkshire police spokesman admitted that the alleged bogus officials investigated ranged from genuine social workers, door-to-door salesmen, canvassers, and researchers to portrait photographers and a television crew. Rough year for documentaries, folks. Rough year. In 1991, four years after this investigation began, legislators implemented the Children Act, and it mandated that social workers should intervene at an absolute minimum, and that even if a social worker removes a child from the home, the social worker must make reunification with the family an immediate priority. So this is all very recent cases of supposed government officials coming and trying to take children away. Right. And I think that we should probably further examine this theme of children going missing. Are we going to examine a theme? Each week, we pick a story and bring you a variety of themes on that story. We're inside out this American life. Now you know. (laughs) So I want to tell you a story that takes place in County Galway, Ireland. And this is from 2014, written by a man named Martin Sixsmith. On a gray, rainy afternoon, I was taken to a patch of land at the center of one such estate, surrounded by houses built in the 70s. On the edge of a scruffy playground, I found a plaster statue of the Madonna on a pile of stones, incongruously sheltered by an old enamel bathtub. Beneath it were the bodies of nearly 800 babies. What? It's like a horror movie. It is like a horror movie, but it is actually a true story of a place called the Tomb Orphanage. It was run by the Sisters of Bon Secours until 1961. In the 20s, it had been a workhouse, and later it was turned into a maternity home in 1925. It was operated as a maternity home, or as they call it throughout all of these articles, a mother and baby home, for 36 years. In the mid-1950s to 1960s, the Catholic Church took around 60,000 babies from their parents for adoption. In the UK. And many of them were sent to America in exchange for large, air quotes, donations. So they were basically selling babies. Which is cool. Is it? No! No, it's not! Not at all. That was sarcasm. You bought a panda. Oh, I can't help that. What's its mother think? Look, I'm not here to unravel that story of tragedy and woe, but he was an orphan panda. Was he? Is that what the priest told you? No, it's what he told me. So, in this article... Sixsmith interviewed a man named John. He was older at the time, elderly, who said that he and his friends had seen what they thought was a ball in the yard of the old orphanage. So one of them kicked it and discovered that it was a child's skull. No, gross. Oh, my God. I think that's what they said. So John also describes a group of boys digging for worms to use to go fishing. And they lifted up a slab because it was loose. What the boys found was horrific. The slab concealed the entrance to the Victorian septic tank built for the workhouse. Its original function had ceased in the 1930s when Maine's sewer came, but the nuns had seemingly put it to a new and grisly use. Mary Sweeney, one of the boys there that day, says, It was a concrete slab, but there was something hollow underneath it, so we decided to bust it open. It was full to the brim with skeletons. The priest came over and blessed it. I had nightmares over it. Apparently. Hell yeah, you had nightmares. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does sound like the end of a like true gore horror movie no it sounds like the beginning oh true true 
So this group of nuns is apparently very sanctimonious and very dogmatic. They seem to be very keen on punishing girls who sought their help. And this was a form of atonement. They were required to work. And there are cases like the Magdalene Laundry, which was a workhouse, basically, slash maternity home, slash orphanage, slash foster home, where these girls and other children and young women from the region were put to work. And they've discovered a stash of skeletons there that are adults and children working conditions were deplorable but that's they keep finding these things they're everywhere but it also went on to this really interesting level where they would deny the girls any kind of pain medication like during labor and after birth it's very mother Teresa of them oh isn't it Right. The nursery was described as neglected and crowded. Measles and dysentery killed hundreds. Infant mortality in the Catholic mother and baby homes was between five and six times that of the rest of Ireland. They're doing a great job. So Nellie, which is not her real name, described her experience. I came in pregnant, was put to work in the nursery, she says. It was awful. There was no medicine, and the babies were always getting sick. One of them caught something. They all would get it, and the nuns did nothing about it. The worst is the green diarrhea. I mean, it just poured out of the little things. It was so bad you couldn't even put nappies on them. They just lay there in it. There was nothing you could do. The diet was terrible. There was overcrowding and disease. No doctor to call on. There were babies dying every day. Well, this is deplorable conditions. Absolutely. So the home was demolished in 1972. But there continued to be rumors about the home babies, as they were called. However, there was an eight-foot wall surrounding the property, and no one was allowed in. I can't imagine why. Huh? It's like they had a secret. It's like they had a sea of baby skeletons. But a pair of local women, Catherine Corliss and Teresa Kelly, they call themselves kitchen table historians, which I think we could probably join their ranks, uh, wanted to investigate this. Catherine said, Some locals do remember that grave diggers would be seen late at night, bringing the children out and putting them in there. They were without coffins, just wrapped with white shrouds. Oh, that sounds like a ghost story. It that sounds like something your mom would tell you. It absolutely does. Sounds so made up. Like Where's the phantom re- social worker yeah. stuff to me? Sounds surreal. I mean, this is like, you can imagine your mom saying, like, you should be happy you have a home here. They used to bury the little orphans in the kirkyard. Not even in coffins. Eat your beans. Would you like a spot of tea, love? So they began seeking out old documents and trying to procure maps and interviewing people who had lived there a long time and trying to track down people who had been associated with the home. And Catherine eventually sought out records in Galway. There was documentation of all the children who died, pretty thorough documentation at least, how old they were and what they had died from. And there were 796 on her list. Most of them were between three and six months old, and there was another cluster around two years of age. Does that mean no one knew this was happening at the time? I don't think that the outside world was privy to it, and I really don't think they were looking. Because there was a giant stigma of surrounding out-of-wedlock birth. Right, I mean, they'd be sent to these homes. They were Catholic bells. Yeah, we're talking about bad Catholics and bad pediatricians in this episode. It's pretty, pretty cathartic, I have to say. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting to blame all the evils of the world upon you. But there was an inspection report from 1944 that said that there were 333 babies in the home at this time, and they were all between three weeks old and 13 months old. They were described as fragile, pot-bellied, and emaciated. 31 were listed as poor babies, emaciated and not thriving. There is a miserable, emaciated child with a voracious appetite and no control over bodily functions, a delicate 10-month-old child of itinerance, a 5-year-old with its hands growing near its shoulders. It says that the mortality rate at this time is, quote, 
high. There were 300 deaths between 1943 and 1946. High is one way of putting that, yes. This high number may be the reason that the nuns started putting the bodies in the septic tank instead of properly burying them. So when rumors of this story began to emerge, there was a local couple who took it upon themselves to kind of make this makeshift monument, and that's where you get the Madonna in an enamel bathtub in the grounds. And they also began keeping the grounds up, which is very kind. But Teresa Kelly says, We want to put those children's names on a plaque and get them up there on the wall. They deserve to have a name. The day they were born and the day they died. The mothers don't know where they're buried. People will be looking. They deserve to know. A relative of a child born into them has filed a formal complaint with the Irish police. The relative was born on May 21st, 1950 to a single mother. And this institution's records regarding this child simply say died. His mother, however, claimed that he'd been sent to America for adoption. The anonymous relative said, I just want to know what happened to him. There's no death certificate. He could still be alive or he's in that grave. Catherine Corliss said, I know there are other mass graves and there are people wanting to recognize them. There are mass graves all over Ireland, unrecognized, unnamed children's here in Tuam. We hope to give some justice to them. Now, the Archbishop of Tuam was very clear that... We did not do it. It's not. Nope. That the diocese was not responsible for the home, which seems to me, to me personally, just seems tiny bit unlikely. Now, the sisters of Bon Secours were equally evasive. We've not got a single record, they say. We gave everything over to the county council, and it went out to the health board, so we have absolutely nothing to do with the home. These reports begin to surface, as I said, around 2014. There's media interest. However, they were revived in March of 2017. So very recently. And this is from a Guardian article by Jamie Grayerson. Excavations of the site of the former Bon Secours mother and baby home in Tuam County, Galway, have uncovered an underground structure that is divided into 20 chambers containing significant quantities of human remains. The judge-led Mother and Baby Homes Commission said, Most of the remains uncovered were those of children aged between 35 fetal weeks in three years. Radiocarbon dating of the samples recovered suggests that the remains date from a time relevant to the operation of the mother and baby home, the commission said. A number of samples are likely to date from the 1950s. Catherine Corliss, again, submitted a Freedom of Information request for the documents on the home from 1925 to 1961. However, these requests were denied, but she was given the 1970s documents pertaining to the property. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What did she find out from those? They obviously didn't see the importance. There's an area across the map marked burial ground. Oh, no. Why did you mark it? First, the houses were built around that area. And finally, a playground was built on part of the burial ground itself. Okay, this is a ghost story. I'm pretty sure there are urban legends going around right now about this. <laughs> Minutes from a tomb council meeting call for due care and sensitivity when building the playground because of the children's burial ground and adjoining burial ground. Now, the Irish Times did try to contact the sisters for comment. On closing the home in 1961, all of the records were returned to Galway County Council, who are the owners and occupiers of the lands of the home. We can therefore make no comment on today's announcement, other than to confirm the continued cooperation with support for the work of the commission in seeking the truth about the home, which we had nothing to do with, I tell you, not a damn thing. We didn't do it. Not a thing. Not a thing, not a thing. Look over there. At the playground, look at the ghosts. They're on the swing. (laughs) Oh, are they, darling? I'm so glad we built a playground for the ghost children. Oh, icky. It's like, are you afraid of the dark? In the beginning, the swing going oh, by yeah. itself. So, Washington Post reports. 
This theory and discovery provided a glimpse into a particularly dark time for unmarried pregnant women in Ireland, where societal and religious mores stigmatized them. The government placed unwed mothers in these church-run maternity homes, and this was a form of social welfare outsourcing. They paid only small fees to the homes. So now we've upped the ante here, because you see, we were previously just dealing with a church. We were dealing with this private religious institution. But now it's dawning on me that, no, the state, the government, actually subsidized this. They sent these women there and paid them a fee. The government did. This is a whole new level of depravity. Right, but they were telling their close ties between the two. Sure. And what better way to be like, send them off to the church. They'll be taken care of by those nice nuns. Nun rat, Sister Ratchet, you mean? Apparently they were never hit by rulers in school. Were you? My dad was. Oh. <laughs> there were schools in South Louisiana that did still. Wrap your knuckles. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My friend David went to one of those. I don't think that was practice. I think that was a special exception for David. I'm surprised he still has knuckles. <laughs> He'd probably get a lot more done if he didn't. So Catherine Corliss said that after the formal inquiry began and the remains were discovered, it was an enormous relief to have the truth come out about what I knew. I could only imagine what the survivors of those who died must feel and those who had family connections to the home. The church and state owes them all an apology. The commission is investigating 18 other institutions. No, I mean, they've already found two. Who housed unwed mothers between 1922 and, wait for it, 1998. Of course. So that's an egregious case of what, from the outside, looks like a positive thing. Positive institution. Yeah, the sweet nuns are taking in these mothers who have sinned. Right, and they're doing the state social work for them. And they're going to take care of them and the babies. They're going to go to America. I mean. I want to go to America. They sing in America. Right? Fievel went there. West Side Story sang about it. Jack and Rose went there. Oh, well. Well, hmm. so that's an example of an institution that was sort of a, a bogus social worker. Like the premise was out there and it looked right, but they were not doing what they said they were doing. Right. They were mistreating these mothers and children and, and leading to the death of many, many newborns. And children and building playgrounds on top of them later so that they can be haunted. And I can dream about that every night and not sleep. Sleep well. Mm, okay. That really does freak me out. Like, I find that very creepy. But let's look now. Let's go back in time where they keep the history. More? More. And let's look at an individual who may have been the original phantom social worker. Who could it be? Is it the angel maker? It is the angel maker. This is one of the creepiest, creepiest portraits of a serial killer I've ever seen in my life. It's a great supervillain name. It is. She's not. Her name is Amelia Dyer. She murdered around 400 infants. Murdered? In the span of 20 years. And some sources say 30 years. She was found guilty of the baby farming murders in 1896. Now this all came to light when the body of a baby girl named Helena Fry was found wrapped in newspapers and packing paper, which was tied with string. Inside the package was the body of the young girl, infant, and dressmaking tape. And this was discovered floating in the Thames and reading. This evidence helped secure her conviction. What? Yes. Just like how it was packaged? Was it packaged in like her diary (laughs) paper? Well, it did have her address on it. No, dumb. 
dumb. Dumb. Yes. <laughs> Not a supervillain. So the great-grandson of the arresting officer, James Beatty Anderson, found the package in an evidence tag in his loft. Wow. That's not something you want to come across in a trunk. It's almost as bad as a bride. Oh, the ghosts have gone away now. I mean, things were just moving and the playground out back, the swing just kept going. And suddenly I turned this in and they were all gone. Magic. Well, he did turn it in. He donated it to a museum in Berkshire. But when the package was discovered... And Anderson examined it. He did find a faintly written name and address, which led him to Dyer's door. So it became evident that Dyer was running a scam. She ran ads stating that she would adopt babies for money. And she mainly focused on desperate young women who were pregnant out of wedlock. And often she would kill the infants within days of taking them into her home. Initially, she began taking in infants in the late 1860s in Bristol, opening a house of confinement in the suburb of Totterdown where she took in unmarried pregnant women who had nowhere else to go, according to the mirror. Ah, again, doing the Lord's work. Mm-hmm. So according to reports, she sometimes smothered babies at birth. Not the Lord's work. No. Doctors could not tell stillbirth from suffocation at this time. Oh, yeah, you'd have to, like, autopsy under a microscope. So initially, after this initial foray into the smothering, she decided that was messy, and she decided to drug them instead. So she was giving them opioids like laudanum was her favorite and this would keep them in a vegetative state until they eventually died from starvation but after surgeons became suspicious because of the vast quantities of laudanum that she kept requiring this lady must have really bad headaches yes that's totally why i need it totally why i need it that's why i'm taking laudanum right now or seven So she began strangling the infants with dressmaker's tape, and then she would wrap their bodies in paper packages and bags and dump them in rivers. She began a fostering service, and after about a decade, she was charged with child neglect. Oh, good. She served six months in jail. Oh, well, that was quick. Yes. Eyewitnesses reported seeing as many as six different babies coming into her home each day. How many would they find in the river? Lots. Helena Fry was discovered on March 30th, 1896. Eventually, six more bodies were found in the following month, and further evidence linked her to 12 more murders. After several bodies were discovered, she confessed, You'll know all mine by the tape around their necks. You are such a fucking nut job. Mm-hmm. It's believed that she killed hundreds more. Britain's adoption and children protection laws had to be toughened up because of public out- outcry. They had them? <laughs> Maybe they were, like, on the books, but not enforced. Like, you know, that one weird law about you can't have a bear in public if it's wallpapered, whatever. I'm not paying that ticket. (sighs) So, after her arrest, there are several songs written about her. And if you're good, very good, I'll share one with you. I'm going to start being very bad. (laughs) So, she was sentenced to death, and she was hanged at Newgate Prison on the 10th of June, 1896, at age 58. Her prison commission file records her last moments. On account of her weight and the softness of the textures, a rather short drop was given, but it proved to be quite sufficient. Her soft texture? Yes. I wonder if she's going to explode. Karma would catch up with her eventually. I mean, I say she's a prime candidate. I guess laudanum's not as flammable as alcohol. So, the ballad. The old baby farmer has been executed. It's quite time she was put out of the way. She was a bad woman, it is not disputed. Not a word in her favor can anyone say. 
That old baby farmer, the wretch Miss Dyer, at the old bailey her wages is paid. In times long ago we'd have made a big fire, and roasted so nicely the wicked old jade. Poor girls who fell down from the straight path of virtue, what could they do with a child in their arms? The fault they committed could not undo. So the baby was sent to the cruel baby farm. I love these old ballads. They're all so sweet. (laughs) What did she think as she stood on the gallows? Poor little victim in front of her eyes. Her heart, if she had one, must have been callous. The rope round her neck, how quickly time flies. Down through the trapdoor, quickly disappearing, the old baby farmer has come to her harm. The sound of her death bells told she was hearing. Maybe she went to the cruel baby farm. These old ballads are all so sweet. Yeah, no. You can, like, sing this and rock your baby to sleep. I made up the melody. It probably does sound very lullaby-y. I apologize about that, but now I think on that, the irony is uncomfortable and i feel bad don't sing this to your children please please god don't don't do it (laughs) don't no no so let's stop picking on the uk but you guys you guys they're so easy to pick on they're easy to pick on apparently i haven't watched the news recently no but i have so with this part let's talk about this woman manoli pagador she has three daughters and lots of grandchildren but she had never gotten over the loss of her firstborn a son nearly 40 years ago. Now, she always talked about how she didn't feel like he was dead, and she came to think she was kind of crazy for believing he was alive. The doctors had told her that her son had died, and he was buried. Now, in 1971, Manoli was 23 years old and had just gotten married. She gave birth to what she was told was a healthy baby boy, but he was immediately taken away for what were called routine tests. Now, nine hours passed... Then a nun, who was also a nurse, coldly informed me that my baby had died. She said they would not let her have her son's body, nor would they tell her when the funeral would be. Wait, I've seen this. What do you mean? Then a priest steps out from the shadows with another baby and says, Why don't you take this one instead? It is fate. No, but this does have some serious eeriness to the omen. Eerily similar to the omen. Eerily similar. Okay, are you sure? Are you sure this is not a screenplay? (laughs) No. Okay. So she said, doctors and nuns, I couldn't accuse them of lying. This was Franco's Spain, a dictatorship. There you go. Even now, we Spaniards tend not to question authority. Yeah, Franco's Spain does go a long way to explaining what's happening here, but yeah. Okay, continue. So just a few years ago, two childhood friends, Antonio Barroso and Juan Luis Moreno, how's my Spanish... It's, it's, it's good. It's not too Frenchy. It's pretty Frenchy, but you know what? Maybe you're from a border town. I am. We'll let you we'll let you do it. Now they're from a town near Barcelona. And on Juan's father's deathbed, he confessed. Okay, again, are you sure this is not the omen? <laughs> I bought you from a priest in Zaragoza. Okay. Come on. And he also confessed that Antonio had been bought as well. Everybody buying babies. So the two friends went to an adoption lawyer, and that's when they heard that this lawyer had been hearing a lot of stories like this. Now they started to investigate, they went to the press, and people began to come forward. 
It's like, and I am adopted. And I am adopted. And I was purchased in Zaragoza. And I was purchased in... It's like, I am Spartacus. It's not like I was adopted, I was adopted. It's like these like these kind of stories. These just like really half stories, like little pieces of truth. That there was a girl in my out. village who said she lost her baby. There was a, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, like lots of people saying I'd lost the baby. Lots of people whose parents were confessing or had said things when they were drunk. That you one know, time at baby. There was one story like that, you know, and things like that where they'd gotten these little pieces of information. And then once you hear a hundred stories like that, you start to go, huh. Maybe it's not just a story. So now the practice of removing children from parents deemed undesirable and placing them with approved families began in the 30s under General Francisco Franco and his regime. Now, Franco's military faction, a very deep nationalist identity, sure, considered single mothers, Republicans, and prisoners to be unfit to look after and appropriately educate their children. And so, the children were taken from them against their will and put in the hands of good Catholic families who were loyal to Franco's way of thinking, who wanted children and who would guide them towards the true good morals of Franco's Catholic Spain. While this began as like this ideological plan under Franco, it began to expand and they began to take children from parents just for moral or economic deficiency. One journalist claimed that they would fork over what would equal 1,200 euros for a baby. So there might have been some financial gain for these priests and nuns as well. Alms. Alms for the poor. Historians estimate up to 30,000 children were affected by the ideological cleansing of Franco and his regime. Now, in the 1950s, practice was converted into a mafia business, says Enrique Villa, a lawyer. The goal became money. They took children from anyone to sell. Now, at least 2,000 official cases have been filed with Spanish prosecutors. Holy moly, 2,000 of these, huh? But lawyers believe that up to 300,000 babies were taken. Experts believe these cases may account for up to 15% of the total adoptions that took place in Spain between 1960 and 1989. Now, it's important to note that Franco died in 1975. So this continued even after his agenda was gone. Because he handed the responsibility of all these social services over to the Catholic Church. Good, good, good. We've seen they have a really good record. So far in this episode, (laughs) they're really good. Now, nuns and priests created lists of would-be adoptive parents, and doctors often lied to mothers, telling them that their children had died. Now, this lasted for so long because Spain, during the transition period, did not begin to take back over the hospitals until 1987. So, looking at this timeline, I know it is absolutely impossible that there was firm knowledge of this when the Omen screenplay was written. It was not out. But it's a little almost prophetic and bizarre that the church is so involved in this and we have that fear tapped into. Well, as you see in Scotland and America, I mean, the church is taking babies and placing them in homes all over the world. Right, with the foundling hospitals and stuff like that in uh, New York, which we talked a lot about in our baby train episode. The church was a very strong proponent of that system. So one story, a 72-year-old Dolores Diaz Serpa, she gave birth in 1973 and says when she awoke from surgery, she saw two cots. 
A nurse said she'd had twins, but the boy was then removed, and when Dolores woke up again, she was told she'd only had a girl. I mean, people, people thought she was crazy. She thought she was crazy. I would think I was crazy. Yeah, I'd always believed I'd had two children, and they took one off me. I would dream of him and wake up, wondering how he was. Now, her belief was kind of proven because in 1995, when she requested her medical records and that of her children, she was sent papers for only a baby boy. Oh, Dolores, honey. In another case, Inez Perez admitted that a priest encouraged her to fake a pregnancy so that she could be given a baby girl due to be born at Madrid's San Ramon Clinic in 1969. The priest even gave her padding to wear on her stomach and helped form the padding to make it look more like a baby bump. Now, in 1981, civil registry sources indicated that 70% of the births at Dr. Eduardo Vela's San Ramon Clinic in Madrid were registered as mother unknown. 70%. Yes. Now, this was often used as a term to protect the anonymity of unwed mothers. But still, 70% seems high. Right, and he is accused of taking babies and selling them. Now, the BBC was investigating this, and they have an excellent documentary. Uh, I guess we'll put a link up, to on the site about this. And she confronted Dr. Vela. This BBC reporter. Yeah, who is now an older man. And this is what she describes, that Dr. Vela grabbed a metal crucifix, which had been standing on his desk. He moved towards me, brandishing it in my face. Do you know what this is, Katya? He said, I have always acted in his name, always for the good of the children and to protect the mothers. Enough. Enough. Come on, get it. Get it. Enough. You don't have enough rage for this line. Sorry. <laughs> and he insisted that he always acted within the law. Well, the law was a mess. Like, he kind of did. It's a pie. Not an excuse. <laughs> now, interestingly, Spain refuses to set up a national inquiry into this due to amnesty laws passed after Franco's death. But graves have been dug up of the babies. That supposedly died. Yes, across the country. Some have revealed nothing but piles of stones. Some have contained animal remains. Okay, come on. It's the omen. It's the omen. <laughs> Some have contained adult remains. Sometimes... While it should have been a boy, it was a girl, etc. So just like, the math is not working out here. Mm-hmm. Now, Anna Josefa Escabia died several hours after giving birth in 1975, but her husband clearly remembers seeing his daughter alive. I saw her born, he said, with his eyes welling with tears. She was gorgeous, just like her sister. But doctors later told Salvador that his baby had been stillborn. A sealed coffin was delivered to the cemetery. Now, tormented by doubt, Salvador decided to open the family vault after all of this started coming out. DNA tests revealed that the baby inside was a boy and of no relation. This makes me so angry because it's absolutely just the epitome of an ethical. But on top of that, this gaslighting is so sinister. Oh, right. I mean, they're just like completely convincing people that their children are dead and then selling them to the highest bidder there was even one case of a guy from here in texas and he was reunited with his spanish family terrible i'm glad he was but this is like i'm glad he was reunited that's not terrible but the entire system slash practice slash whatever you want to call this i'm just so not into the i was just following orders line of reasoning like it's never gonna work no 
Spaniards across the country are now taking DNA tests and all these people are being compared to see if anyone is related from mothers that have this sneaking suspicion that their children were taken away instead of actually born stillborn to now adults that were children that feel that they may have been adopted or were given some kind of piece of information from their parents that gives them a suspicion or even some are told. Like when I see the ancestry.com like DNA stuff. I'm always like, why are you going to do that? What would you learn? If I was in Spain, I'd be spitting in that thing and sending it in so fast. But, you know, the practice of adoption has always been practiced in such an incredibly ethical and above board way. I mean, just throughout the ages, there's been nothing at all to raise eyebrows or wrinkle noses. Always just pure light and goodness. Well, adoption has always been part of human culture. And in a positive way, you know, people have taken in other people's children, you know, related to death or sickness or destitution throughout humanity. Right, but like with anything that starts out as a meaningful, worthwhile practice, it takes so little for it to tip over into the darkness. And I'm thinking of like the indent- the children who were indentured servants. I'm thinking of baby trains. You know, early in this country, a lot of kids that came over with families who were not genetically their own were indentured servants. And they were usually, you know, considered hired help no matter how long they were in the home. And a lot of not great things happened. There's some of that in our Jersey Devil episode. I would refer you back there. But another really interesting thing that happened, and we talk about this extensively on the My Baby Takes the Morning Train episode from back in the day, are these orphan trains that went out across the country where they would just load up a bunch of kids that were supposedly orphans some of them some of them weren't orphans some of them were just like in the wrong place at the wrong time and were hustled onto these trains but they would load up these kids strapping young lad get on here and they would send the trains out around the country and they would trot the kids out and the kids would all stand there and some of them would sing songs and some of them would recite poems whatever try to impress people and people at the train stations would say i'll take that one Right, and so with these baby trains and with the foundling hospitals and and all that, there began to be that kind of progressive movement in the United States. And they were trying to end this orphanage system that was causing so many problems. Now, this kind of all came to a head with the first White House conference on the care of dependent children, called by Teddy Roosevelt. T.R. He rough rider this. Oh, good. 1909. In this, it was declared that the nuclear family represented the highest and finest product of civilization and was best able to serve as primary caretaker for the abandoned and orphaned. Now, there was some backlash. Now, it happens that some people are interested in the welfare and high development of the human race. But leaving aside those exceptional people, all fathers and mothers are interested in the welfare of their own families. The dearest thing to the parental heart is to have children marry well and rear a noble family. How short-sighted is it then for such a family to take into its midst a child whose pedigree is absolutely unknown or where it is partially known? The probabilities are strong that it would show poor and diseased stock, and that if a marriage should take place between that individual and any member of the family, the offspring would be degenerates. Thank you, Henry Goddard. Thank you for your two 
sense. Oh, he had lots of sense. Really bad sense. And so this is when, you know, eugenics rears its ugly head at this time. It's the noise eugenics makes. It's terrible. Now, the brochure for National Home Finding Society, from like the 1910s to 1920s, linked child placing with utopian progress. Adoption promised to reduce divorces, banditry, murder, and control births, fill all the churches, and do real missionary work at home and abroad. They could exchange immigrants for Americans and stopping some of the road leading to war. So adoption was tied to so many things, eugenics, but also to the utopian society that was so popular at this time as well. I mean, rainbow stew for all. It's just so promising. Well, it was also seen as a way to kind of move up the social rankings. Oh, so you could take an urchin and put him in with a family of wealthy people and he would learn how to be like a wealthy person and it would fix everything. Yeah, especially as the ideas of like nature and nurture start popping up. Mm. Now, adoption did become more socially acceptable with time. But as people were placing children from the orphan trains to adoptions... Later, they were charged with ensuring that their families took in children born to others, had the money, food, and room, not to mention wisdom, patience, and love, to do their job. Now, these home visits were really barely done. Shocking. And that's when you start to see these cases of, like, baby forms. So these were common in the late 19th and early 20th century. And many clients were unwed mothers, prostitutes, and destitute, or deserted wives, who needed help with their children while they worked for wages. This is what was referenced in the song about the angel maker. And, you know, of course, it developed this terrible reputation. Exposés uncovering horrific abuses and horrible death traps in the newspapers about these baby farms. And so by the 1920s, many states had taken action against these commercial pa- practices. And we should say that these reports were not exaggerations. Like, they really were not sanitary. They really were not conducive to raising healthy, happy children. But this is the age of yellow journalism, and it was written about in such a way as to sensationalize it even more. And spark social outrage. Yeah, well, the press is good for something. Now, here enters Miss Beulah Georgia Tan. That sounds Southern. She was touted by none other than Eleanor Roosevelt for her great work in establishing adoption as a more common practice and was even invited to Truman's inauguration. She was lauded in the national press as the foremost leading light in adoption laws. But the thing is, Tan sold more than 5,000 children and killed scores more through neglect. This is why we can't have nice things. Now, in 1924, Tan started to work at the Tennessee Children's Home Society, where she turned part-time baby snatching into a big business. She kind of paid off the mayor and set up her own little orphanage. Now, during the time she ran her, quote, business, the infant mortality rate in the city was the highest in the country. Now, she followed many of these eugenics ideas, and she felt that wealthier people were of the higher type and considered women in poverty, quote, breeders and cows. Lovely. She even began running George's Christmas baby ads in local newspapers with a headline reading, Want a real live Christmas present? Oh, Georgia. Babies are not puppies. They are also not chicks dyed Easter colors or rabbits. Don't buy those either. There are some cases where single parents would drop off their children at nursery 
and when they came back to collect them, they would be told that they had been taken away by the welfare officers. Now, newborns were most highly demanded, and Tan would even bribe nurses that worked in the maternity wards to lie to the mothers and tell them that their baby had died, and she would take them. Some of these kids were sold as farmhands, servants. Some were starved, beaten, raped. But some were sold to wealthy parents. Even Joan Crawford's twins, Kathy and Cynthia, were bought from Miss Tan. That's like a very high stakes game there. Like you could end up Joan Crawford's kid or you could be beaten and raped. One of the two. Now, by the 1950s, officials began a long overdue investigation into her business. State investigator Robert Tyler reported the horror of what had been taking place at this orphanage, saying her babies died like flies. Mm. Now, please tell me that this woman gets what's coming to her. Well, in a way. (laughs) Now, before she could be questioned or charged, she died of uterine cancer on September 15th of 1950. Karmically, that feels right, but I would have liked to have seen her go through the justice system. But I mean, like, uterine cancer? It feels right. (laughs) I can't say it doesn't. So really, these investigations into these places like baby farms and making sure the homes were appropriate for kids, while it was stated they would do it, it was not actually legally required until Minnesota passed the adoption law of 1917 that charged public authorities with making an appropriate inquiry to determine whether the proposed foster home is a suitable home for the child. Good call, Minnesota. Thanks for that and Prince. Oh, that's enough. Now, they weren't just trying to determine the like practicality of it, like do they have enough money? Is the house clean? They were also trying to determine the psychological reasons behind them wanting to adopt children and if they could provide a stable environment. Ooh, it sounds like they've got some Freud up in the joint. They do. Freud, we've missed you, old friend. We're so happy you're back. Right, so these social workers were very influenced by Freudian psychology. They believed that people interested in adopting were unaware of their own motivations and unable to determine for themselves if they were emotionally ready for parenthood. No one's emotionally ready for parenthood. That's very true. No one. (laughs) The sincerest and most enthusiastic couples might be fooling themselves and never know it, whereas the couples who expressed ambivalence might be perfectly suited to the task of raising adopted children. This sounds like outsmarting yourself. That's kind of what it is. What is your subconscious reasoning? Now, you know, we've talked about the idea of a family romance before, and that's part of Freudian psychology where a child, in order to become an individual requires some kind of escape from that love of their parents. And so in order to do that, they would create these fantasies where they imagine that their real parents were much better than these terrible, imperfect parents, and they were taken away at some point. Did you ever do that? No, I don't think so. I didn't either. But it could be subconscious. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, I'm back on board. (laughs) But of course, you see the problem when it comes to adoptees. Oh, well, they actually could imagine that their parents were different than their parents' basis in fact. Now, better is very subjective, but you can project whatever you want onto these anonymous figures. Right. So one social worker from 1939 said, There's a real element of mystery in the illegitimate child's background, which makes such correction by reality either impossible or unconvincing. So that's to say, like, even if you meet the mom, 
and the mom's a raving idiot or whatever, they're still going to be like, yeah, but I bet she's cool. Yeah, she'd probably be a lot nicer. She'd let me stay up all night. I bet you on land they understand. I bet they don't reprimand their daughters. Really? <laughs> you know it. <laughs> That's but always what my family romance makes me think of is that line from that Disney song. <laughs> so the family romances of adopted children just created more unanswered questions and sometimes unanswerable questions. So these ideas were used in support of sealing documents from adoptive parents. Now, the secrecy began with Charles Loring Brace, who introduced it related to the orphan trains to prevent children from returning to or being reclaimed by their birth parents. Sounds ethical. So, you know, with these, the, the adoptee's family romance was more like a, a nightmare than a dream that could cause a lot of deep sadness and distress. Well, it's especially hard with the orphan train riders because some of them were like 10 years old. I'm going to go ahead and say you remember your parents by that point. Right, but this is kind of talking about that fantasy, you know, mm. that that fantasy, that idea of, oh, if, if I only had my real parents. But in this, knowing that they'd indeed been given away and feeling that their very selfhood was divided and incomplete, adoptees were at a special risk for a range of psychopathologies. Call them bullshit. Right, now we know this is a ridiculous idea. <laughs> but at the time, you can see their motivation for what they did was related to Freud. Freud. Damn it, Freud. Stop it! So by mid-century, illegitimacy was widely perceived as the result of an unhappy and destructive parent-child relationship that remained both unconscious and unresolved in adolescence and adulthood. So if you take that Freudian lens, your little spectacles... So this adoption of children born to unmarried women were no longer tragedies to be avoided, but constructive acts that transferred children to adoptive parents whose psychological and other qualifications were superior to those of their neurotic birth mothers. I I have to say that he's saying this in the voice of someone from that time. Oh, right, of course. And we don't think this anymore. I already called it bullshit. I know. But I just feel like I have to say it again because it's it's very irritating. So I have titled this section that we're about to explore together. Do do do. Are you gonna explore with me? I knew you would. Illegitimate concerns. So these are papers written on the various psychopathologies of unwed mothers from the early twentieth century. This particular paper is called Casework with Unmarried Parents and Their Children. These but, are gonna be so terrible. Oh, it's it's really offensive. By Catherine F. Linroot. So this is from 1925. Every child has the right to be born with honor, and his birth should not be an obstacle to the fullest and highest development of his life and his social activities. This is the opening clause of the Code of Rights of the Children, which was adopted in 1924. Under English common law, these children were known as nobody's child, and under the Napoleonic Code, the children were denied knowledge of their paternity by law. Humiliation, ostracism, and those ancient weapons used by society in defense of the sanctity of the home and the family are not to be employed against the innocent child. The answers of these questions can be developed by a slow, painstaking process involved in what we call social casework, and by the gradual education of the public to a more just attitude toward the problem of illegitimacy. Her 
the unwed mother's delinquency, made extremely difficult to conceal because of her maternity, is one of the kind punished most drastically by society. The girl's fears not only suffering for herself, but shame and humiliation for her loved ones. She is torn between maternal instinct to love and care for the child and the instinct for self-preservation which prompts her to conceal her trouble from the community and perhaps even from her own parents. Infants born out of wedlock have been found by the United States Children's Bureau to be subject to a mortality rate almost three times as high as those of infants of, of a legitimate birth. Yes, you can see they're like, like we're, this is just to protect the children. Yeah, their harlot mothers don't know what they're doing and must be stricken across the face with rulers immediately. I mean, to me, it sounds like they're describing the women almost like animals. Mm -hmm. They've got these two warring instincts. Oh, and especially at the time when no one's letting on that we have instincts. This is the height of Victorianism. I guess not in the 20s, but you know she's old. (laughs) Marilyn public sentiment was aroused in 1916 when a statute was enacted providing that no child under six months may be separated from its mother for placement in a foster home or institution. Under the Milwaukee plan, applications for separation or exception for the three-month breastfeeding rule are submitted to the Juvenile Protective Association. A study of applications for separation during the first eight months showed that 69% of those who applied for immediate separation were persuaded to keep their babies and nurse them. And only 9% of this group released their children at the end of those three months. It has been an experience of the association that the appeal to unmarried mothers to nurse their babies for at least the minimum period of three months as a kind of reparation for having brought him into the world so handicapped is an almost unfailing argument. Wow, so they were like requiring them to keep them for at least three months to breastfeed. Yes, and then shockingly... After these women had breastfed babies for three months, they were less keen on giving them away or letting the state take them. Good plan. Shocking. I can't imagine why. So let's move now into a paper by Leontine Young. Young, don't get too excited, not with a J. Not Zung. Not Young. Personality Patterns in Unmarried Mothers from 1945 to 1947. The Psychology of the Unmarried Mother what she is like and why she becomes an unmarried mother is infinitely complex. Its roots are deeply embedded in those powerful emotions of early childhood, which form the basic pattern and structure of an individual's total life. It's of the mother. Mm-hmm. It represents a direct expression of early fantasies and emotional conflicts. Perhaps this very directly has contributed to the confusion about the unmarried mother. Clearly she is a human being, like all other human beings, responds dynamically to her particular life situation. But also, clearly, she chooses one common and specific response, having an out-of-wedlock child. Like, they choose to do it. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's impressive. Yes. Well, you could just pinch a penny between your knees. Come on. Aspirin? No, a penny, and aspirin dissolves. Anyone who's observed a considerable number of unmarried mothers can testify to the fact that there is nothing haphazard or accidental in the causation that has brought about the specific situation with these specific girls. On the contrary, there is an inevitability about the chain of emotions climaxing in this action which rivals the old Greek tragedies. So in a random sample of the hundred cases, there were three types of family patterns which revealed themselves. Oh, I'm so excited. Firstly, the dominating mothers. Freud. 
36 came from homes in which the mother was the dominant personality. The father was a weaker person, emotionally cut off from the children to a greater or lesser degree. The mother, on the other hand, dominated her daughter's life to an unhealthy degree and was usually possessive and often rejecting and sadistic. There's a striking similarity between the girl's relationships to her own father and her relationship to the father of the baby. One cannot escape the conclusion that she is in one sense seeking her own father and that the father of the baby is truly a kind of biological tool, unimportant to her as a person in his own right. So just a sperm donor. Oh yeah, she's just using him. There's like We look at these and they seem so ridiculous, but like you see where the modern mindset comes from that people have. Well, I think that this language is applied to women. A lot. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. I was like, I, I think we've kind of turned it on its head, but we're still using the same, like... It's saying pretty awful things about women. Short-sighted. But I think that we use this language of like, oh, he was just using me. I think that's still so common. But, it, you know, we're using that very short-sighted, basic understanding of motivation, just all willy-nilly and whatnot. What better revenge could she devise against a rejecting mother than to bear an illegitimate child and place the responsibility for him upon her mother's shoulders? Revenge, wow. This is terrible. Okay, well, clearly, if dominating mothers are the first type. Dominating fathers. Second type. So these represent 15 total cases. And in most of these, they gave the children up for adoption with little quarreling. Observing them, one got the impression that they were trying unconsciously either to deny their fathers by picking up a virtual stranger or to re-experience with a lover much the same kind of masochistic relationship that they had with their own fathers. So either they're trying to make their fathers sad by seeking out illicit sex or they're trying to re-experience the same relationship that they have with their fathers with their partner. That's a really big range. She's like, let's blame somebody. Yeah. And then the third category is broken homes. So 43 total cases, 22 where the father was gone, either through death, separation, or divorce, eight where the mother was gone, and 11 in which both parents were gone and their girls had been raised by relatives or in a foster home. And clearly this just fucks everything up. You know. Of course. Right. So she makes some inferences because she's at liberty to do so. And she says, certainly there are common elements in the backgrounds of these girls. Most conspicuous is the fact that none of them had happy, healthy relationships with their parents. Conflicting feelings of love and hate were the primary causes for the girls' unhappiness. Certainly there are common elements in the background of these girls. All of these girls, unhappy and driven by unconscious needs, had blindly sought a way out of their emotional dilemma by having an out-of-wedlock child. None of these violent, neurotic conflicts are helpful ingredients in creating a good mother. Thanks. How are your ingredients? My ingredients are tip-top shape. All Whole Foods organic free range? Oh, absolutely. That's why I can sit here and judge judge all these women so harshly. My ingredients are fucked up as shit. Come on. <laughs> Just like everybody else's. Mine are bitter. <laughs> Charlotte Lowe wrote Intelligence and Social Background of the Unmarried Mother in 1927. Oh, this is going to be lovely. So the median age for the group was around 20 years old. So the mode was 18. Relating this to the intelligence, we find that the younger they are, the brighter they are, as shown in the following summary. So 15 to 19, IQ was around 92. 20 to 24, IQ was around 90. 25 to 29, 85. 35 and over, 
63.6. So they must just be degenerate morons. Mm, absolutely. Feeble-minded. Feeble-minded. Insane. Interpreting these figures, we made the deduction the brighter girls are delinquent because of an impulsiveness or an emotional instability of youth and need only a sobering effects of years to solve their problems. If this is so, does it not seem that the ideal social work would be to get in touch with these girls before they become delinquent? The facts seem to show also that so far as learning from age is concerned, the feeble-minded remain forever young and therefore in constant need of supervision and protection. Recommendations based on this study. First, that every unmarried mother must be given a mental test as a first step in an effort to understand her as an individual. Second, that the ones found to be feeble-minded be prevented, if possible, either by segregation, close supervision, or sterilization from having any more children. Stop sterilizing people. Oh, so fun. Third, that more ways and means be provided for reaching young girls before they have become delinquent. Fourth, that county superintendents, the social workers, and the churches of small towns and county districts watch out for their girls and watch them leaving school to see what they do and where they go. Keep an eye on those delinquents. Fifth, that churches, social workers, and teachers do not overlook girls who are living at home, for they are just as apt to become delinquent as girls who have left the home. Those bad delinquent girls. Oh, we understand everything now. Just watch them like a hawk and cut their ovaries out if they're stupid. Thanks. Sounds like a plan. Solve everything. So Amy Eaton Watson wrote The Illegitimate Family in 1918. Further and better standards for casework in this field must be established by studying experimentally the question of removing the evil effects of the stigma of illegitimacy. Only injustice is done in allowing this to attach to an innocent child. We must get evidence to show us when the welfare of society is furthered by having stigma placed on both the parents. Above all, in line with findings of modern criminology, emphasis must be placed upon the re-education of individuals involved, not upon punishment or stigma. So she's saying, like, don't put the stigma on the baby. Eh, might be of some benefit to stigmatize the parents, but the baby, no, the baby's fine, which is progress. But I mean, at this time, it really was a stigma, without a doubt. To be an unwed mother or to have an illegitimate child was Social suicide. Absolutely. And that's why we get things like the girls who went away. Very true. So the girls who went away are women who were sent to maternity homes. And maternity homes are places where girls who got in trouble, got pregnant out of wedlock, would be sent to secretly finish their pregnancy, deliver their baby, and surrender it for adoption so that they could return home saying that they had been taking care of an aunt, had a long illness, been away studying, etc., and pick up life as normal because, you know, what's nine months? And this is all chronicled in a book called The Girls Who Went Away by Ann Fessler, which is an extraordinary and very heart-wrenching, I guess, heart-wrenching read. I've revisited it several times over several years and I don't think I've ever made it all the way through the book because it's just hard but she chronicles what happened to these women who were sent away to deliver babies between 1945 and 1973 sort of the years between World War II and the passage of Roe v. Wade at the Supreme Court level which can just be taken as a symbol for more readily available contraceptives and broadening ideas about extramarital sex and At this time, sexual norms were changing quickly, but this information was very insular. 
and very guarded, and part of the conversation for younger peer groups only. The social stigma of being an unwed mother was so great that many families, especially middle-class families, felt that it was unthinkable to have a daughter keep an illegitimate child. I air-quoted there. These women were either married quickly or sent away before their pregnancy could be detected by others in the community. You know, where I went to school, if a girl became pregnant, she had to leave when she started showing. Where I went to school, our homecoming queen was pregnant. (laughs) That's not a joke. That's serious. Different lives. Throughout this section, I'm going to use quotes from the women that were interviewed in this book. And I'll let you know when I'm doing that. This is one from a woman named Tony. This was in a period of time when there wasn't much worse that a girl could do. They treated you like you'd committed murder or something. And the counseling at this time was at best um, not patient-centered. Girls were often not asked but told that they would be sent away and that they would continue their pregnancies in secret and leave their baby to be adopted. And that would allow them to come home and forget and move on. But it wasn't as easy as it sounds. A woman named Diane said, It's so powerful and pervasive. And the longer you keep a secret, the more power it takes on. Carol says, quite frankly, It's not that society can't understand. It's that they won't understand. People choose not to understand. Chances are that the baby was not unwanted. It was a baby unwanted by society, not by mom. You couldn't be an unwed mother. Motherhood was synonymous with marriage. And if you weren't married, your child was a bastard. And those terms were used. I think I'm like many other women who thought, it may kill me to do this. But my baby is going to have what everyone is saying is best for him. It's not because the child wasn't wanted. There would have been nothing more wonderful than to come home with my baby. That's from a woman named Glory. Joy says, I was not allowed to keep my baby. I would have been disowned. I don't even know they had programs to help women and children back then. It was made to feel very ashamed of the situation that I had created for myself. I guess I had to convince myself that I didn't give him away. I gave him a way. A way to have a home. It's the only way I could live with it. It's from a woman named Joyce. And Polly said, I never felt like I gave my baby away. I have always felt like my daughter was taken from me. And there was a lot of pressure on these girls. I mean, of course, there's the family... There's the church, and but there's just society in general. I mean, like she's saying, it's like, this wasn't unwanted by me. This is unaccepted by society. And, for example, the church did play a very big role in a lot of these decisions. And one woman, Dorothy, describes a meeting with her priest in which he told her that babies born out of wedlock could not be baptized. So she had two options. She could either find a Catholic man to marry her, which incidentally the father of her baby was not Catholic, so he was deemed unacceptable. Or you could give the baby up to a Catholic family. Otherwise, if the baby died, it would go to purgatory, which is a hell of a metaphysical threat. Right, they had this idea of limbo for a little while (laughs) for unbaptized babies, but it was recently like taken out of the church doctrine. Somebody unrang that Catholic bell? Yeah. Okay. And then another woman, Diane, said, The priest said, I was doing the wrong thing trying to arrange a marriage. He said, You must know from your 12 years of Catholic education that you need to take responsibility for yourself. I could hear that coming out of a priest's mouth. (laughs) And the parents were not better. So a woman named Annie wanted to marry the father of her child and he wanted to marry her and they had been planning to get married and she got pregnant and she went home to her mother and she said i'm pregnant we're getting married and she said like hell you are and she said okay i'll consider it let me go meet his parents 
and retreating from that meeting, Annie's mother told her, they have linoleum in their living room. They're not good enough for you. Do you want to be like that in 20 years? Linoleum? (laughs) Trash. Right? And so her mother eventually decreed, you're going to go there. You're going to stay until you have your baby. You're going to give your baby up for adoption. And you're going to come home and forget this ever happened. Someday you'll thank me. And that really was the pervasive idea. It's like, you're going to go, you're going to forget, and you're going to be happy about it. And then last bit of Annie's story, she describes her mother dropping her off. My mother briefly got out of the cab and hugged and kissed me. I remember that she was sobbing when she left. I remember her shoulders were shaking. And I think now of how difficult, how heartbreaking that must have been for her. I was so nasty to her. Oh, I was nasty to her. I'll always carry that picture in my mind of her with her shoulders shaking as she got out of the taxi cab. Another woman, Cheryl, describes this. I don't remember exactly what happened the next few days or week, but my mother kept saying, are you sure you don't want to marry him? That's what women do. Linda said, my mother said, I don't know how this happened. We took you to church. And I just looked at her and said, I wasn't thinking about church. I can see you saying that. I can too. That's why I put it in here. Edith said, I told my parents, I can't do this. And they said, you can't come here. You can't bring her here. My father said, you'll have other children. People ask me how I got through it. And I say, I turned myself to stone. Anne says, I know there was no sympathy for me whatsoever. I think I did tell them I was raped, but it was still about how I disgraced her, my mother. And that's all it was about. In addition to their own parents being nasty, the parents of the boyfriends were often kind of nasty such as with Kathy. I knew my parents would be upset, but I didn't know how bad it would be. My mother was screaming and yelling, and my father threw him out of the house, the boyfriend, and hit me so hard that I went across the kitchen. It was horrible. I just never expected that. Then we went to tell his family, and they were horrible too. He left me sitting in his house with his mother screaming at me, and the last thing I remember her saying was, What have you done to my son? What about my son's life? And vile temptress. Mm-hmm. And you really do get the impression that this was a complete conspiracy by the adults in the room. One woman says, the grown-ups told me to do it, so I did it. You know, all my life, I really, really tried to be doing the right thing. I just didn't always get it right. Her name was Yvonne. And there was this really strange dichotomy that still exists today. I mean, we talk about it like it's completely gone, but... I grew up in a small town in the South, and I'm definitely familiar with this exercise. There was an idea that there were good girls and bad girls, and there were just baseline boys. Oh, right. And never the two shall meet. If you're a good girl, (laughs) if you're a bad girl, you meet them all the time. I meant the good girl and bad girl are never one and the same. (laughs) Yeah. But you're right. And you see this reflected even in the way that they deal with their children. One woman, Dorothy, says, I gave birth to a little girl who's going to have to go through this, that poor little thing. I'd always thought that boys had it better than women. All my life, you know? And that whole experience made me feel even more so. That it's girls who get punished, and girls suffer through all this stuff. And girls who can't talk about it. So even though culture looked down on premarital sex, I mean, just as it does now, and most of our flyover states (laughs) but no truly in most of the country people were still having premarital sex wait i thought we invented it (laughs) no every generation thinks they invent sex in the 1950s 39 percent of unmarried girls were having premarital sex 
Now, by 1973, kind of when this peaked, about 68% of unmarried girls were having sex. Now, by the mid-50s, 40% of all first births to girls between 15 and 19 years old were out of wedlock. And by 1971 through 1974, you'd had 60% of girls. So this was not a problem that was being solved (laughs) by shaming them and sending them away to have their children in secret. And at that time, there was this trend, you know, moving away from dating around to going steady. Hey, Sam, do you want my pen? No. What? I have your ring and your babies. I don't need your pen. Keep your damn pen. You need your pen if you're going to have my babies or they're going to send you away. Yeah, that didn't work out. (laughs) I came back. But, you know, this going steady kind of thing just provided a safety net. It was like a promise ring engagement to be engaged to be engaged. So you sort of see this trend at the time, and it moved at different speeds in different places. But it kind of became okay for people who were engaged to have sex. We're not going to judge them. And then it became like... There's a commitment. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, if you're pinned or going steady, you can have sex. That's fine. And then it's like, well, if you're really in love, I guess that's okay. And it's like, well, he's kind of cute. I guess that's fine. Eventually. But it takes a long time. And the interesting thing about this set of like social rules is that it's a peer in forced morality code it's not something that the adults are telling them because the adults weren't telling them anything no the adults were like we see nothing and so becoming pregnant was sort of this violation of social order that really upset peers because it was like telling the secret that they were all inventing sex as every generation does to the world it was letting them know it's like oh my god you're pregnant your mom my mom's gonna know you've been having sex and she's gonna think i'm having sex you're breaking the secret code right But ironically, not surprisingly, boys were exempt from this balancing act. Maybe because they couldn't get pregnant, and maybe because it's just that we've always kind of said, oh, boys will be boys. Locker room talk is fine. You're going to go sow their seeds. Fuck you. So if you got pregnant outside of marriage, you were a whore, a slut, whatever. You had no morals. Therefore, you deserved this. But if you didn't get caught, you were smart. If you got a fraternity pin on your boob, it meant you were allowed to have sex. That meant you were engaged to be engaged or whatever. I never understood all that, but that's the way it was, says Nancy. One woman, Carol, tells her story. She was drugged at a party. I don't know the birth father at all. I have no visual memory of him. My reaction was, I don't want to think about this again. Whatever happened, I don't want any part of this. She began to think that she had the flu. She went to the library and checked out books on pregnancy because she had no idea what the symptoms were. She was a senior in college, halfway through her senior year, and she kept it totally secret until the end of the semester. I would be expelled from college. It was just an automatic expulsion, no questions asked. I was so devastated that this happened to me, because it was the antithesis of everything I was and how I was brought up. It really shattered every sense of self I had. I went into denial. By denying it, I could be who I really was, and not what I'd become, or at least what I thought I'd become. So the idea that a girl was characterized or defined by her ability to ward off advances was something that really did permeate the ethos of the time. And another woman named Diane says, you couldn't plan to have sex. It just had to happen. It's like if you were thinking about it and admitting that you would like that to happen, you were dirty. But if you just like, whoops-a-daisy, it was fine. Right, you'd just be like, oh, I just thought we were parking and looking at the stars. And then he just made the move, and I couldn't stop him, you see. And Just a boy. 
Mm. Right, you had to play that game. Otherwise Absolutely. You were a, a I slut. Think, I think you still had to play that game when I was in high school. I don't think it's still that way. I think it's changed. Well, it depends on where you are. Depends on your societal group, for True, sure. True, but sure. I do think it's more common that that game is not played now. There was an outright failure on the part of adults to educate and prepare their children for sex. Just absolutely. And this is sort of encapsulated. I would say that hasn't necessarily gone away. Please tell your children about sex. Not today, but, you know, when they need to hear it, please. It's your job. Serious. Looking at you. One woman, Carolyn, says, My mother talk about sex? Oh, God, please. You can't be kissing boys. You can't be letting anybody touch you. Sex is dirty. Sex is bad. It was always bad things. Always taboo. It was never, never healthy talk. My mother was 24 with four kids. Probably that's why sex was bad. Nice. And then another woman, Nancy, said that when she was confronted with the possibility that she might be pregnant by a friend who saw her vomited, she said, Oh no, I can't be pregnant. I'm not married. You can only get pregnant if you're married. There are definitely people that still think that. Because they're uninformed. They're uninformed by their parents. Maureen said, I remember her, my mother, knitting away. And all of a sudden I said to her, what is sexual intercourse? And she looked me right in the eye and said, don't bother me, I'm counting. And I mean, you know, no one knew anything about sex. There was barely any sexual education. And... You know, these new things like birth control were popping up, but no one knew about them. Doctors were very reluctant to prescribe birth control, and in some states it was even illegal. I mean, pharmacists would keep condoms behind the counter, and they would alert parents if they were purchased. Birth control advocates, such as like William Baird, were arrested after giving lectures or handing out information about this. It was immoral. Yeah, William Baird was actually jailed for 36 days for, quote, crimes against chastity. Oh, my. Which is my favorite crimes. If I have to go to jail, that's the crime (laughs) I want to commit. So, you know, without a clear idea of how pregnancy occurred, when one was ovulating, how to use the rhythm method, contraception, how to properly use a condom, how to use birth control... Of course, more and more women that were having sex were getting pregnant when they didn't want to be. This is one of my favorites. Nancy says, I asked my mother, how do they get rid of the mark where they take the baby out? And my mother looked at me and said, my God, Nancy, the baby comes out the same way it went in. And I said, you have got to be kidding me. And she said, no, it's borderline child abuse not to share that kind of information. How can anyone think we just absorb it naturally, that it's our responsibility as children to figure it out? It just mystifies me. I had no idea. And so they were getting pregnant when they didn't want to be, and they were very quickly pressured by society, church, etc., parents to go away and have this baby. So this is a description of what a maternity home was like from a girl named Claudia. The maternity home had really dark woodwork everywhere dark woodwork railings and lots and lots of marble stairs. It was attached to the hospital, but it looked more like a house than a hospital. It looked like an old lady's house in England or something. It had a weird, disapproving grandmother feel to it. They had big dorm rooms where four girls slept in a room. You had a little twin bed with a dresser, and then there was a lunchroom, and they always had stewed tomatoes. They gave us water pills every day so we wouldn't retain fluids, yet they were feeding us all this high-sodium hospital food. So anyway, this is where I am. I'm 17. I'm at least five months pregnant. 
I'm in this really weird place run by nuns. Their disapproval was palpable. They gave me the name Masha. Everyone was given a fake name. I bonded with my three roommates, and of course, we knew each other's real names. There was probably about 25 girls in the home at that time. The youngest was 14. She was one of my roommates, and the oldest was in her middle 30s. Intake nun was a really hard-looking woman. They all had mustaches. The nuns where I grew up were from this order in Sicily, and they had lots of facial hair, too. Nuns do not get rid of facial hair. I felt like I was plopped in an environment and given no choices whatsoever. You know I've done the ultimate shameful thing, and this is the only answer to my problem, or the problem I've caused my family. There was really never any counseling or therapy, but there was a dialogue, and this is what it was. You've done a really bad thing, You've really sinned. You've committed the ultimate moral sin. There's a big difference between mortal and venial sins. Mortal sins are really bad sins that you've got to really, really make amends for. You're going to give up this baby for good to good people, people who can take care of it because you are so bad and so flawed for just having this happen. And there's no way you could possibly provide what your child would need. And if you were ever going to redeem yourself in God's eyes, you are going to give this baby to a good Catholic family. I never believed that only a Catholic family was good, but I definitely believed that I was flawed. I already believed this from the time I was about five, so it didn't take a lot to really drill that home. So I'm in this home, and I make friends. There's a 14-year-old girl. She's a white girl and a wicked tomboy. She was really fun. And then there was this black girl from Massachusetts who was about my age and really pretty, really nice hair with a bouffant like the Supremes. We became very fast and good friends. And then there was this girl from upstate New York. She was brilliant. She reminded me of a best friend from home. She had long, straight, strawberry blonde hair and this Ben Franklin glasses. I always thought that girls my age who wore those kind of glasses had men's potential. And the four of us really connected. During this time, my dad would come to visit without my mother. It was the only time in my life that I was ever with my dad alone. He came to visit a lot. We weren't supposed to have any sweets at all. It was off limits against the rules, but he'd bring in dozens and dozens of Dunkin' Donuts. He'd sneak them in in a big brown paper bag with a handle. And he would take me and my three pregnant roommates out. He would sign the four of us out. So he's going out in the community with a 14-year-old pregnant girl, the black girl, the eccentric intellectual, and me, his daughter. And we're all hugely pregnant. He took us to the movie. We'd go to Chinatown for dinner. He took us to museums. He wasn't ashamed. It was the only glimmer of any happiness that we had when we knew he was coming. The day I went into labor, my water broke, and I thought I'd wet my pants. They took me down to the hospital, and I was all alone there, and nobody was friendly. Nobody was nice. Nobody said, don't worry, you're going to be okay. It wasn't overt meanness, but it was total clinical indifference. Turn over, roll over, we're going to shave you, you're going to get an enema. I just felt like I was being led alone by this invisible rope. And it's not surprising that a lot of women who went through this experience experience long-term feelings of low self-esteem, fears of abandonment. But you also can't take their surroundings out of context. And the context of the time was very focused on conformity. You have this suburban boom, growing middle class, the 1950s, right after World War II. And there was this inherent need in all of these people who were part of the new middle class to continue proving their deservingness. We never let our girls do that. Right. Conformity was the key. And ironically, parents' fears about being treated poorly and cast out of their social circles led them to mistreat their own daughters in the same ways that they feared. 
And during this era, you also have many women who are in marriages in which they're very dissatisfied. But divorce was really not an option because it was incredibly hard to get and socially taboo. So they stayed. So the generation before these women had sort of stiff upper lipped themselves into suburbia because that's just what you did. And then you have depictions of nuclear families all over television. Shows like Leave it to Beaver, Ozzy and Harriet, and Father Knows Best. And then you have that rare single father, Andy Griffith. And cool uncle shows were very popular, but there were no depictions of single mothers on television. It seemed an insurmountable task. You also have fewer economic options outside the home and fewer options for childcare. You needed parental support to keep these children. And it was impossible for a lot of girls. And listening to these stories, you know, this really hits home with me especially because, you know, my father was adopted from one of these homes in Florida. So, you know, we only know some of the details, but I can imagine my biological grandmother in this situation where she finds herself pregnant, unmarried, and her family, most likely after a big fight, sends her off to a home so that no one finds out about it. And she has to stay there, possibly alone, maybe with the companionship of some of the other girls. And she has to stay there until she delivers the baby, delivers my father. And luckily, he was adopted by a great family. They really are the best family. A good Catholic family. They really are the best Catholic family. (laughs) But it's hard not to hear these stories and think about the situations these girls were put in and not be able to relate to my biological grandmother who who had to do this, who had to have been so lonely and scared and having to deal with the social pressures and situations that she was put in by the rest of society and by her family and forced to give up her child. And it's so strange to have that story from that side because I bonded with my mother like one of the first times I ever felt like I spoke with her as an adult was when we talked about the experience she had when she was younger where my aunt was sent away um she had just finished her senior year of high school and she went to stay with my great uncle and his wife in Oklahoma and deliver her baby and it tormented her for years and I think it scared my mother to death seeing that because she got married when she was 16 <laughs> And I wonder how much of my aunt's experience is responsible for my parents who have been married forever since they were 16 and 19 and now daddy's 70. I wonder how much of that experience informed my mom's decision to get married at that young age. But Aunt Del went away to have her baby and for years it was a secret. And finally one day my mom talked to me about it and I picked up this book and I started reading these stories and it really, really resonated with me. Because I had the strange little pieces of family drama and, you know, these segmented memories that belonged to my mother. And I knew that my aunt was looking for her son. And recently, in the last two years, he found her. And he comes to all of our family events and sends my grandmother beautiful flowers and has a beautiful family in New Orleans and a very rich life. He never sought her out until after his his adoptive parents passed away. But they reconnected and seeing them together is 
heartbreaking and wonderful all at the same time because he's happy and he had an incredible life. It's just still such a big question mark. It is because my father was never able to find his biological parents. And I think he was put in a situation that a lot of people are in. They're so grateful and happy with their adoptive parents. You know, just like Andale's son was, it's like, do I appear ungrateful to try to look for my biological parents? And it's one thing that stemming my dad from really looking into it was that he didn't want to hurt my grandparents, the ones I call grandparents, the ones that raised me and raised him. It's a society creates these phantom social workers, creates these pressures and norms that people are forced to follow. And even though we may not have some mysterious or ghostly figure appearing at our door to demand children, there were times where that was not needed, where society was enough and societal norms were enough. To create those stories. And those stories were internalized and weaponized and deployed in order to keep people in line, keep things in order. And the weight of the confusion and the complication and sometimes the wounds definitely the wounds that are left on the survivors and the legacy of these programs and these attitudes are so much more than the things that went into creating them and I think it's important that we tell these stories and I think it's important that we never again stigmatize mothers and children and families for being different, for not conforming, for creating a different story. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.